0: So here at Sojourn, we have been working through a series called Sojourn Essentials, where we are talking about why we exist as a church and what we prioritize, and and hopefully you guys have been able to see the progression thus far. Today we come to our third priority, which is community. So the progression is going this way, hopefully you guys have have been able to see it and, and, and sense that this is the way it has to go, that we prioritize the Bible, that this is God's Word, this is our book it informs and instructs all that we are as believers and all that we are to do as a church and as individuals. So we, because we care about and prioritize the, the Bible, we prioritize and care about the gospel, the central message of the scripture that's, that's not just a message for unbelievers. It's both for believers and unbelievers, a message that will both form us and fuel us and believe as believers. And we come to our third priority, which, which flows from the gospel. It flows from the Bible. That if we prioritize the gospel, and if we're really gospel-centered, then we will prioritize community. That this community that we're talking about is our local church. This is our family. And so if you would today, would you turn to the book of 1 John? In 1 John chapter 1 is our text this morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If not, you can follow along on the screen. First John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1-4. through Hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray together with me? Fathers, we turn to your word. Would you help us as your people to listen to it humbly? Would you help us to... Know not just information and words on a page, but know You. For we know that this text is is written out by man, but every part of it, every word is inspired by who You are. It's Your Word. Help it to inform us and instruct us to form us and fuel us this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I don't think that there's any question that now we are living in what we'd kind of call an individualistic culture. That is to say like even over the past 50 years or so America has shifted to a, from a more community picture of culture to very much an individualistic culture. Where one San Diego State University psychologist and we don't even need anybody to say this but but notes that we encourage this obsessive focus on the self. You see this all the time. In TV shows that are out there, there's an excessive self-focus. You see this in social media. There's this obsessive self-focus with an audience that wasn't there before. We've seen this in a couple different ways. This is evidence. One of them is is that they've they've tracked in the American culture, in books in America, what words were used and how often they were used. and We've we've shifted from words of, of we and us to a lot more words of I and me, and, and especially the word you, where they're talking to one individual in books. There's this huge shift from the, the we language to the I language. You see this even in, in names. It's indicative of this. Like 50 years ago, names, people would want to get one of those top 100 names or whatever that the, the Social Security Administration sends out. They want to they be more likely to give their child a name that was in the top 10 so that their child could fit in. And now what do we do? We, we, we do the opposite. We, we want to give our, our child a name that is different, that's unique, so they will stand out. Now those things in and of themselves aren't saying that you're egotistical or you know, individualistic. It's just indicative of, of what the culture is, as a whole is, is kind of moving toward, a much more individualistic stance. And yet we see over and over and again that people are satisfied with this individualistic culture. That's Working the way that they want it to work, that the people are still hungry for community. Social media is an an excellent platform to see this worked out. So you see people that that are craving, even if they kind of like to stay to themselves, they're they're craving on on the internet to, to be with other people, to have friends, even if it is in their own way, where they can kind of not put out the energy that it takes to have friends in person. And one of the greatest needs that we have in our culture today is this need for community, the need for people around us. The Bible is very clear about this from the beginning that it's not good that man be alone. And while we love this individualism that we have going, like we still see this craving inside of us that longs for community. And the Bible calls us to God and the Bible calls us to community, biblical community. So as 1 John writes here this morning, he, he writes to these, these all hearers that they would receive this word of life and the fellowship that results. And this fellowship is a fellowship that is with God and with other believers. So in verse 1, John begins in a familiar way, recalling creation language from Genesis 1. But it's likely that he also wrote the Gospel of John before he wrote this book of John, and so he's, he's recalling Genesis and the Gospel of John when he says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life." And so here's what the author's doing. He's bringing up this creation language, but he's speaking as an eyewitness to these things. He's speaking as one who is there, who knows, who's seen, who's heard, who's touched. He writes, he says, concerning the word of life. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he's writing about. You might remember this in, in the gospel of John. He says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word had life in him, and this life was the life of men. Christ is the one who gives life and who is himself life. And this is what he's bringing up here too. That in the beginning was this Word, and He has life in Him. This is a, a Word that He's giving concerning the Word of life. And he's communicating in this very first verse two very important essential truths concerning this Word of life. And the first one is that He's eternal. Now He was from the beginning. That is, He, he never had a beginning. He never started. He was just, it, when there was a beginning, He was already there. He said this in the Gospel of John. So you're right, in the beginning was the Word the Word was with God. He is eternal. That is, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. There's not a time when He was created, He has always been. So He is God. He is eternal. But yet, He is eternal. Historical. That is, John is an eyewitness to Him. He entered into time, space, history. This Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And and John says that He's heard Him. He's seen Him. He entered into human history. So He was God and He became human. And these are two essential truths for us, that, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And both speak to doubts about Jesus and who He is, both at the time that John was writing and now. So there would be some that would say... Well, Jesus, yeah, He was God, but He just kind of appeared as a human. And John would say, no, He entered into time-space history. I've seen Him, I've known Him, I've touched Him. There would be some that would say, well, He was just a human and a really good one, but He wasn't God. And John would say, no, He was from the beginning. He is God. These are essential truths to Jesus' identity. And what they're doing is that they're, they're warding off, they're pushing away heresy about this Jesus. And the author is speaking not as one who has kind of remote knowledge of these things, but as an eyewitness. He's saying these things. He's heard, as he saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, he heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He, he's seen Jesus go to a tomb and yell into it, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus, get up from death and walk out, showing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Oh, he's touched. Touched Jesus' body after it had been in the grave for three days. And appeared to these disciples. John has seen, he's heard, he's touched. He's an eyewitness and he knows that this is concerning the word of life. That is this one he's seen and heard and touched who is eternal and historical. This is the one who is the word of life. That there is life in his name. Verse 2 he says this. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. "...which was with the Father and was made manifest to us." That is, this life, concerning the word of life, the life has DNA. This life has fingernails and hair and skin. This life is human. This is Jesus in the flesh. This word took on flesh. And once again, he proclaims Jesus as both eternal and historical. But you see that he is with the Father, so he is equal to God... But he is also with the Father. He is distinct from God. He is equal with the Father and yet distinct from Him. This is the inner workings once again of the Trinity. And so based on the identity of Jesus, who He is, John proclaims eternal life in His name, in who Jesus is. That is, He has to be eternal. He has to be God. He has to be historical. He has to be man. He has to be with the Father and yet not the Father. And yet because of who Jesus is, his unique identity, there is eternal life in his name. And as an eyewitness, he can speak to these things. And I would say he can't help but speak of these things that he has seen and has heard concerning the word of life. He knows that all who believe in Jesus' name will not perish, as it says in John 3.16, but have eternal life. And so he proclaims this word to them. He does what any faithful steward Of this great knowledge and message should do, as he says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. He takes this message concerning the word of life, concerning the person and work of Jesus, and he gets it out. He proclaims it. He does what any good steward would do he gets the message out there. He is never sitting on the message, he is always proclaiming it. You never see the apostles sitting on the message of the gospel. Wondering what they should do with it. They are always proclaiming it. They are always getting it out there. It's this natural overflow from what they have heard. John, as this eyewitness, as one who has seen and heard these things, doesn't protect this as his own personal knowledge. He doesn't keep it to himself. doesn't say, no, this is something that's just for me. Treats it as his own. No, he gets it out there. This is concerning the word of life. These people need this. It's like a messenger who would be on the front lines watching the battle go on, seeing his people win the victory, running back and telling the good news that there's victory for our people. This is what John is doing with these shoes that are made with the readiness to tell the victory. He's going and he says, I want to proclaim it also to you. The word of life must be proclaimed. This is the word that he's seen, that he's heard, that's been made manifest. And we're reminded, once again, as we start the, this, this book of John, we're reminded that we can't get away from the gospel. And everywhere we look in the, in the Bible, we see gospel. It's whispering everywhere we go. It's the Bible's message. And it's a good place to be reminded that this is the message that we have to believe in. This is the person that we believe in, Jesus. Have you believed in the word of life? In the eternal Son. In the historical Jesus. See, John is proclaiming life in His name. And only in His name. That is in the name of Jesus. And he wants this proclamation to be received. He wants it to be believed by the people that are hearing this. And I want say to you today, if you're not a believer, that there's too much, at least in, in this passage pretty clearly, too much being offered to not at least look into it. If there's eternal life offered in someone, that's something worth looking into, whether you're a believer now or not. And I encourage you to look into it. Eternal life is being held out there. That's something to think about. But if you're a believer, we are reminded that this message is still for us, that we're not moving beyond this, but we still need this word of life. And it brings us assurance. But we face countless arguments doing not? Of things that are being said about Jesus, of either that He's not the eternal Son of God or He wasn't truly a man, and we could go back and forth on all of those, that we are facing these arguments, as it were, of the historicity of Jesus, that is, that He's historical, that He's a man, or that His eternality, that He is God in the flesh. We, we face these all the time. And if either of those two things fall, if Jesus is either not God or not man, if either of those things are wrong, then we are done as believers. We no longer have a faith to stand on. Jesus has to be both God and man. There is no Christianity without this Word of Life who is both eternal and historical. And if Jesus isn't eternal, then He's not God. He was created. He's a creature. If He's not historical, then He's not man, and He really can't save us. can't redeem. But here's what we have as believers. We can find assurance here in these first couple verses from John. That this is someone who came And saw, he heard Jesus. He's seen Him. Jesus was made manifest to him. Why would he say all these things if that wasn't true? And certainly when he says this, he's putting his name out there, his reputation, his knowledge, his wisdom. All those things are at risk here. All those things are on the line for John here. And yet he's willing to do that because he sees this as compelling evidence, as an eyewitness. He believed so much in the, the Word of Life and this Jesus Christ that he would risk all of that. And to me, that's pretty compelling. And John wants his readers to receive this word, but that's only the beginning of his goals. If you keep reading in, in verse 3. So why does John want to proclaim the word of life? In verse 3, he says, We proclaim it also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So he he proclaims the, the word of life, hoping that, that we will be drawn into fellowship, is what he says. It's all about fellowship. Fellowship is the sharing of common life. It's this closeness, this intimacy that you would have with another. It's this committed partnership with, uh, with other people. This is what fellowship, common life, sharing of this common life. And he says, our fellowship is indeed with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now once again, that may not sound as a sh- like a shocking truth to you, but we hear this over and over again, and we fail to remember the, the amount of glory that's wrapped up in that message. Let's just think for a second if if I were a spy for Russia and I were sending secrets back to them and working basically to support them and their advance against us, America. And and let's then say that that the president found out about this and decided, you know what, no big deal, I will forgive you. I'm going to extend a pardon to you, even though I've committed high treason. that, That sounds like a crazy thing. Now you don't just pardon people who are actively involved with treason against you. And yet that's what we need to think about, a more of a biblical picture of what he says, where he says that we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, because what is happening is that we aren't just neutral people, we are rebels. That we have our arms up against God, that we are giving Him the stiff arm, that we are doing things our own way. And He is the High King, who we have committed treason against. And yet He offers us fellowship with Himself sinful people cannot have fellowship with the Holy God. So how is that possible? That John would say this and invite us into this? Well, I think in verse 7 you see a little picture of this. He says at the end of verse 7, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. He says in verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son is blood-bought fellowship. It is not earned, it is not deserved. We do not deserve to have fellowship with God. And yet God, in His mercy, in His grace, has provided a way for us to have fellowship, closeness, partnership, common relationship with Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. That both cleanses us, forgives us, and reconciles us to God. This, brothers and sisters, is the only way we can have fellowship with God. only through the blood of Jesus. We cannot have fellowship with God apart from sacrificial death from a perfect God-man. And yet we know that Jesus is both the eternal Son and the historical Son who came, lived a life we could never live but should have, died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, not His own, and raised, making a way for us to have fellowship with the Father. It's only through His blood. And He says so if we confess... Jesus forgives us and cleanses us and brings us into fellowship. Have you confessed your sin? Have you let Jesus forgive you, cleanse you, and draw you into fellowship with Himself? See, when Jesus' blood cleanses us and forgives us, then we then have fellowship with God Himself. We share life with God. John places a high value on sharing life with God. He says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that we may know God. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent, this is eternal life that they know God. So the only possible way for us to know God, the only way for us to have fellowship with God, closeness with God, is through the blood of Jesus. It's through His death and His resurrection, His body and His blood, that we have a way to have fellowship with God. You might remember in the Old Testament, they had the, the temple set up for the people of God, where God's presence rested in that place, in the, the most holy place. They had different areas, so there was the, the kind of the outer area, then there was the, the holy place, the kind of the inside of it, and then that was curtained off from the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And then the most holy place, that was said, where, where God's presence kind of uniquely dwelt among the people. And yet, you couldn't just go in there all the time. Only one person could go in, and then only once a year. That was the high priest. And you might remember what they, the instructions to Aaron. Aaron was this kind of first high priest, this Levitical priest. And, and Aaron could go in there. He could go in there once a year. But, but what did he have to bring in there with him? Do you remember? There was this uh, Ark of the Covenant in there, and it had what we call the, the mercy seat upon it. And yet, Aaron, when he came in there upon this mercy seat, he had to bring something with him, and it was Blood. That is because Aaron had to make sacrifices for the sins of his, his own life first. Something had to die for his sins to cleanse him, to forgive him. And he had to make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Something had to die for the forgiveness of the people of Israel. So he makes sacrifices for himself. He makes sacrifices for them. But he had to take some of that blood with him into that most holy place and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. That is to say, it's a, a reminder... That you can only come in here under God's terms. And the terms of which you approach God have to be with blood. Aaron came with blood, sprinkled it on as a reminder. I've sacrificed for my sins, for the people's sins. This is what we're trusting in, we're sprinkling out there. And now we can have closeness with God. Now we can come into the most holy place. And yet for us as believers, we're reminded by this passage, that's what Jesus does for us. That we do get to go into the most holy place. But it's not our blood or goat's blood or bull's blood that that gets us in there. It's Jesus' blood. And you might remember that when Jesus died upon the cross, there was this curtain that, that tore in two. It was separating the most holy place from the people. Jesus' blood, His sacrificial death, makes a way for us to have fellowship with God. We come in whenever we want because of what Jesus has done. Upon Jesus' death, we now have access to the Father, fellowship with God. And John wants to proclaim that message that it might be received, that people might have fellowship with God. And he says this fellowship is with God and also with His Son. A reminder once again of this indispensable truth that we have a God who is one God in three persons. That we have this God who we we call the Trinity. Unique to Christianity, but essential to Christianity. That we have a God who is one God in three persons. He is Father, He is Son, He is Spirit. God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. One God three persons and they are distinct God is not the Son, the Father is not the Son the Son is not the Spirit and likewise but they are equal, they are equal in essence equal in glory and he says that our fellowship is with God and our God is triune that means he is three in one Father, Son and Spirit and if we miss this about God then we miss God because this is who God is so this is essential, it sounds crazy this Trinity thing it doesn't make a lot of sense but this is who God has revealed himself as so if we miss this We're missing who God is. So in order to have fellowship with God, we have to know who He is. And we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Why He doesn't include the Spirit here, I don't know. Maybe it just wasn't of importance for Him as He writes this letter. But the idea would be there, that He's not just saying, we have fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and not with the Spirit. He would say that that would be included in this. I don't know why specifically it's not listed. But God calls us into this close fellowship with Himself... He has adopted us, as it were, as sons. Now we have fellowship with both God as Father and God as Son. So we have a Father who is perfect, and we have a Son who is kind of our our brother-in-chief. So do you have fellowship with God? This is the fellowship that's included if we receive the Word of Life. Jesus, by His death, by His resurrection, has made a way for us to have fellowship with God. But if I were to ask you... Describe Christianity to me. I think a lot of you would, would come to something like that. Fellowship with God. That we have some sort of relationship with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I, I hope some of you would be able to say that. I think the majority of you would be able to say something like, it, it means having a relationship with God. And that is right. But I, I I also think that many of us would miss this other fellowship that he talks about in verse 3. Because we don't just have fellowship with God and the Son, with with all the God is, the Godhead. He also mentions another fellowship here. If you, if you look back in verse 3. He says, we proclaim this word to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So it's not with just God. It's, it's with us and our fellowship is with God. And so one commentator said this. John could not have written that you also may have fellowship with us. Without adding, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus, since our fellowship with each other arises from and depends upon our fellowship with God. So that's why I did the first one It's kind of the last one in the text. Our, our fellowship with one another is depending upon our fellowship with God. If we're out of fellowship with God, then we're not going to even need to talk about fellowship with one another. We need to fix the first one with fellowship with God first. But if we have that, if we are believers, if we have fellowship with God, if we've come in through the way that Jesus has made for us by His blood, then our fellowship is not just with God. It's also, He says, with us. So the proclamation of the word of life results in fellowship with God and with us. That is, other believers. Now, John doesn't argue that this is how it should be. He just says that that's how it is. This is how it is. It states that this is what's going on in Acts chapter two, verse forty-seven. This is right after Peter preaches this great uh, Pentecostal speech. Many are added to the number; many are saved. It says, in Acts two forty-seven: the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And once again, here's a great quote: He didn't add them to the church without saving them, and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. That is, those two went together right from the beginning of the gospel as it's proclaimed to the world. Salvation and the church were going together. And one other author says that community is our response to reconciliation. That is, that we have this message of reconciliation. This is concerning the word of life. He's made a way for us to have fellowship with God. And our response to this fellowship with God is community with one another. That our fellowship isn't just with God, it's also with other believers. If there's fellowship with God, there's also fellowship with other believers. Because here's what God is always doing with the gospel. He's never drawing just one. You notice that all through the scripture? We've talked about this before. God is always drawing a plurality. He's always drawing a people. He's always saving a people. So there's no solo journey to fellowship with God because He's drawing more than one. Over and over again. Always He's always drawing more than one. Think about going to a game or a concert. What's going on there? People are drawn from all over to one place. They're drawn from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different stories, lots of different situations, all drawn to one place. Now, they're not specifically drawn to one another first. right? They're, they're drawn to an event or a game or a concert first. But kind of by being drawn to that event, to that concert, they're also drawn together. They're drawn to one another. And this is what the Scripture tells us about Christianity. If God is drawing us, and if God is always drawing more than one of us, which He always is in the Scripture, then we will naturally be drawn to one another and have fellowship, He says, with one another. There's this study that's been done on the Olympics and and just reactions from people when they win or lose or whatever is going on. And it's interesting because what they did, they decided to take pictures, like several pictures a second, however many they can do, right as soon as they won or lost. So, so before any kind of cultural instincts or conditioning kick in, they're capturing their emotions, their facial expressions, what muscles are being used, what aren't being used. It's really fascinating reactions that they get from people because basically across the line, no matter what country or culture you're con- you came from, there's, there's so many similarities. And if you win, all similarities, before your cultural conditioning kicks in, people generally have the exact same reaction when they win. And the same is true when they lose. People across the board generally have the same exact reaction when they lose before any cultural conditioning kicks in. And you know what I thought was was extra interesting about that is they didn't just do this with the Olympics, they did this with the Paralympics too. And so they they would take people that were blind from birth that were competing in these games and they would do the same thing. And the same thing was found true for them. Why? Why? Is natural. It's just this knee-jerk reaction. When you win, you, you do certain things. When you lose, you do certain things. Before you even let your training and you know, what you know is you've been conditioned in your culture to kick in. And I think we could say the same about Christianity, right? This knee-jerk reaction, this natural reaction is that we are drawn into fellowship with God by the gospel and we're drawn naturally, unforced, into fellowship with one another. God always draws people and their natural reaction is to come together. Everywhere Christianity exists, those Christians get together. In fact, many of them do so at great risk to their own lives. They are willing to risk even death so that they would get together because it's natural for them. It's the flow of things for them. It's knee-jerk for them. The first time the word fellowship is used in the New Testament, it's used in Acts chapter 2 that we talked about earlier. It's used in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, and it says this. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Pretty simple statement, like right? There's not much I can explain to them other than that's just what they did. They just started hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and started devoting themselves to teaching and to fellowship. Unforced! Peter didn't say at this point, like, well, let's see, let's organize this thing into what we call a church. No, like they just came together. It was natural. It was unforced. It was spontaneous. And I think that this is true because all the, all believers, all unbelievers, every person is made in the image of God. And, and who is God once again? God is one God in three persons. So God exists as this Trinity, as this community in fellowship with Himself. God has fellowship with the Son, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They have this fellowship, they have this community. This is who God is. And if we are made in the image of God, then the natural inclination means that if we are to be like God, we will come with people who are also like God. We will gather together. We will have community. We will have fellowship. And so imaging God well means living in fellowship with other believers. This is the image of God in us. And so the question then becomes like, alright, if, it, if it's just natural and spontaneous, if we're imaging God well when we do this, then why does not it happen? What holds us back? What makes people think, I don't want anything to do with the church. I don't want anything to do with, with fellowship or community. But there's, there's so many things that we could say here. We don't have enough time for all of them. I would just simply say that I think that the biggest one is a commitment to self. One author says this way, we've let proud independence keep us uninvolved. This can be pride that says, I don't need other people in my life. Or it may be pride that says, I don't want other people to see me for who I really am. Both forms cut us off from the blessing and benefits of community in the local church. Now we're not downgrading those things and saying that those aren't real struggles. That there really is a sense that we we think, I don't need other people. All that other people have done in my life is hurt me and harm me and keep me back. Or we might seriously consider and have doubts and fears about the things in our life. I don't want people to really know me because then they could never accept me. We want to say those those aren't real fears. Those aren't real things. But as believers, we don't want pride to hinder us and hold us back from the blessing and benefits that God has provided for us in community. You should be, believer, in fellowship with other believers. This is for your good. This is for the good of those other believers as well. You see, some of those things that we let hinder us are also lies. That one, we think that people won't accept us for who we really are when we're saying that we're just a group of sinners gathering together trying to look like Jesus. When we say that we don't need other people in our life, we're we're screaming out like, I I need a lot of help. We just don't really want to admit that we do it. And yet here in this community we're saying, like, we absolutely need help. I needed this community this morning. And you did too. If you're a believer, you need fellowship. This is how God has created it. And and I think that, once again, most of us would probably agree with that. That you're probably not offended right now. You're probably not pushing back in your mind much. But I think that that agreement might stop in word only. For some of us that is, like, you might agree with all these things theologically. You might agree with all these things in talking to one another, but you might not agree with them in your life and how you're living. That is to say, that fellowship is sharing common life with one another. It's this committed partnership that we have for one another where we're sharing burdens and sins and joys and fears and mission together. We're doing all these things together. There always has to be that sharing, and yet many of you would probably agree with that, but it's in life that we really see if we agree. Do we really have relationships in our local church that show that we agree with that? That actually are playing out to say, I know that I need not only a relationship with God, but a relationship with other people. So the question is, how committed and consistent are we to fellowship with other believers? How committed and consistent are you at sojourn or in our home groups? Or it's a meeting outside of us home group with other believers that you can share your life with and they can share their life with. That's what it means to have fellowship. And if our fellowship is with God, our fellowship has to be with other believers like that. So are we committed to one another? And is it evident? Is it evident to each other that I know that this person is committed to me, that they are involved, that they're here, that they're committed, that they're consistent, they want to be in my life because they see the importance in the Scripture, that I need to be in their life as well? Is it evident outside these walls? The people know they have community. They have fellowship with one another. See, my fear is that for many, fellowship, the local church is just another thing. It's like school, work, family life—we just all those things out there that I have to do. And church life, fellowship—that's just another one of them. Just add that to the plate. When I think of the biblical perspective and John's perspective is that fellowship isn't just another thing. It's not just another thing that we do, it's who we are. It's now our identity in Christ Jesus that we have fellowship with God we have fellowship with others. One author says this, that we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury or an optional addition to the exercise of private devotion. We should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. This is our family. Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, He's doing some awesome things early on in this gospel, and, and people are, are crowding around Him and want to see Him. And His family as well wants to see Him. And now, you have to remember the context of Jesus' life, that, that family was kind of the ultimate building block of the culture. That family loyalties ran deeper than any other loyalty there was. It's not like that today. Very different today, where we have this, once again, obsessive encouragement to the, the, the focus on the self, right? Not then. This was, it was all family. You were loyal to your family. And here's what we see in, in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came and they were standing outside and they sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my brother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so Jesus takes this this cultural norm that family loyalties run deeper than any other loyalty you have, and He just explodes. it. And He says that there's this new family that actually is being started, and it's being founded by me. I'm the center of it, and everyone who does my will, those are my family. That is, anyone who trust in Jesus and is a part of Him they are now He says His mother His brother they are His close-knit family and this is at a time when family loyalty was all see what Jesus is doing here is He is radically redefining family He is radically redefining how we structure our lives now He says that we are redefining family where you have a perfect Father eternal perfectly loving perfectly holy perfectly righteous perfectly caring for your soul that you have this perfect brother who's not greedy with his inheritance but shares it generously wants all to have his inheritance along with him who always treats with love and pursues and goes after us rebel brothers where you have this family where the walls of hostility you have walls of hostility in your family this this family that's been redefined the walls of hostility have been torn down not by family violence or by family squabbling, but by the violent cross of Jesus Christ. All that stuff has been ripped apart, so that now we can have this great diversity in our family, where we can be very, very different and yet very, very unified, as God is distinct and equal. He is one and yet difference. We can have that now as a family. And now we can be in this place where we can share burdens. We can share sins. We can share struggles. We can share fears. We can share victory. We can share inheritance. We can share joy because this is truly our family. And it's this perfect family that God is redefining and reworking. Do we prioritize that family? Is that truly what you would call your family? Are we committed to this fellowship? And we can't say that it's a priority and not then live it out. The whole idea of us going through what we prioritize here is not so that we can just know it, but so that we can own it. So you can own the priority of the Bible by reading it on your own and getting it into others' lives. You can own the priority of the gospel by ministering the gospel to yourself. And when you go to group, you're ministering the gospel to them. You can own the priority of community by, by jumping in, being committed, being consistent with community and encouraging that from others. Do we really prioritize community? And I think that it's pretty clear that God does. Acts 20, 28, Paul's speaking to the Ephesian elders. And this is kind of just an offhanded comment he makes in in a sense. He he says, this is the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Think about the church that we speak so lowly of sometimes and, and how it's obtained. It's obtained with the blood of Jesus. Jesus cares about his body, his church, his community, his family. So much priority was placed on it that he says that he obtained it with his own blood. God is committed to this fellowship. More than we are. That's good news for us, but it also helps us to think, what should our response be to God's commitments? So John proclaims this word of life that his readers might have fellowship with us and with God. But there's also another reason, if you read in verse 4, John writes, for our joy. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. As a faithful apostle, as a faithful elder, John says to these people, That his joy isn't complete until theirs is complete. That our joy can be made complete. And our joy is complete when we have fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. And because he longs for this mutual joy between them, he proclaims the word of life. And how then does he say this joy is completed? You receive this word of life, but you also receive fellowship with God and fellowship with us, with other believers. So the immediate purpose of the proclamation of the word of life is fellowship with God, fellowship with believers. But the ultimate purpose of this proclamation is this joy that he speaks about that's in those things. John knows that at the proclamation of the word of life, this word that he has seen, that he has heard, that he has touched... He knows that eternal life is the result of receiving this message. He knows that when we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with others. And he knows that that is the only path to complete joy. Fullness of joy is only found in fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. Amen. You can try to find it in other places and it will always let you down. One author says that fellowship with Jesus, shared with others, is essential to fullness of joy. It's not a hard sell to say, do you want to have joy in your life? Then I would suggest that you try this out because you were made to have fellowship with God. You were made to have fellowship with other believers. Try this out and see if God doesn't bring fullness of joy in your life. You might have heard of Eric Liddell. He was an Olympic gold medalist. He he said something when he said that when I run, I I feel the pleasure of God. I feel his pleasure he says. And I can't identify with that statement whatsoever. (laughs) I run and I don't feel any pleasure at all. But this is what he says. I'm gonna take it as his truth that he finds pleasure when he runs, or he did. But in a sense, like when I read that I think like, man, he was made for that. He was an Olympic runner. He loved to run. He felt the pleasure of God. He was made. For this it fit him and so when he ran yeah he felt this pleasure of God surging through him pushing him onward giving him great joy feeling pleasure something I've never felt in running but we were created like up to do something we were created to have fellowship with God we were created to have fellowship with others this is what we were made for. And so when we do these things, we, we should feel the pleasure of God in us when we have fellowship with Him and fellowship with other believers. This is what we were made for. It's this natural response to all that God is and to all that He's provided for us in community. Joy! This is the natural response. This is why Paul says in Galatians that it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Not the roots. It's a fruit. It just comes out of the root. When the root's planted the right way, these fruit comes out. One that comes out is Joy. This is why the psalmist could say, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's not worried about what it's going to be like once it actually gets in the mouth. Taste and see that it's good. It's this natural response. When I taste something good, a natural response is like to like it, to have pleasure in it, to enjoy it. This is what Christianity is about. We are made to have fellowship with God. We are made to have fellowship with one another. It's this natural outflow of joy when we have those things like we're supposed to. So do you know that joy? If you don't know that joy, here's what we can say. That you are out of fellowship either with God or with others. That there is something hindering one of those two fellowships. That you might be seeking joy in something else outside of those things and you will never find it, not lastingly. That is, you might find joy temporarily there. It might satisfy you for a while, but it will fade. And we know it especially fade when you're six feet under. It will be done. And yet we know something very, very different about the joy that John speaks of. He speaks of this complete joy that's found in fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers because we can have it both now and for eternity. Like, these are a couple things that will not fade away with time. Because one day, the Scripture is very clear that we will have perfect fellowship with God. We will see Him as He is. And we will have perfect fellowship with other believers. And that's a fellowship that will never fade. So my question is then: if if you're not interested in fellowship with other believers now, or if you're not interested in life uh, where other believers live in the local church, then are you really interested in eternal life? Because eternal life is believers together in perfect harmonious fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit. That's what eternity will be like corporate worship at a local church should be marked by joy because what it is is just this preview for what's to come in eternity so when we look around at each other we ought to be able to see joy we ought to be able to see that joy that marks us no matter the season that we're in it, it shouldn't seem like a somber service And does that seem like a strange thought to us, that that we are to be marked by joy, that even our, our local church gatherings are being marked by joy? It often seems like there's this choice, like you have joy, and you have Christianity. You have joy, and you have the local church. You have joy, and you have home groups. And John says... You have joy and it's only in the local church. You have joy and it's only in fellowship with others, home groups. You have joy and it's only in fellowship with God. And so we should be able to look around and get joy from one another. And I ought to be able to perceive there's some joy in their life that, that really we can't put our finger on other than they have fellowship with God and they're in the fellowship of the people of God. So I hope that that's what we can do. Even as we seen here in a minute, that we can look around and see joy. Because fullness of joy comes in fellowship with God and others. But that joy is only found in those places. We are to be a fellowship of celebration, marked by joy. It should be impossible to keep us from it. Because we have fellowship with God and fellowship with others, what else matters? We've heard and believed in the word of life. He's made a way for us to have that fellowship. That fellowship brings fullness of joy, and we prioritize community at Sojourn. For your joy, for my joy, for the glory of God, we prioritize community. Jesus gave away for us to remember this. To remember the fellowship that we have both with himself and with one another. And it's the Lord's Supper. This is a meal of joy. It's a celebration meal on the field of battle. We have this celebration, this victory meal laid out for us. Not based on anything that we have done, but just based on the work of Jesus. This is what the Lord's Supper is. So before taking this meal, ask yourself this Do I really have fellowship with God? Do do I know Him? Have I been forgiven and cleansed of my sins through the blood of Jesus? But also ask this question Do I have fellowship with other believers? If you are out of fellowship with other believers, if there is sin that stands between you and another believer, don't take this meal. If you are out of fellowship with other believers, that is, you're, you're not plugged in and you don't want any part of a local church, don't take this meal. Take fellowship with God and the fellowship of believers that comes along with it. If there's any sin hindering, just confess and repent and give that over to God and He will forgive and cleanse you of your sin. But if you're a believer, continue to confess, continue to be forgiven, continue to be cleansed, but remember that your status before God it's not based on your work. It's based on what Jesus has already done on your behalf. As a perfect brother, He's made a way for you to come to a perfect Father and have the full inheritance. That's what this meal is saying. So as you come and take this meal, be reminded, you have the full inheritance based on the work of Jesus. You're a part of the family of God because of what Jesus has done. Take it in hope. Take it in great joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for making a way for us to have fellowship with you. We don't even understand how great of news that is. We're growing in our awareness and our knowledge of that. And we pray that you continue that work in us. Thank you for the fellowship we have with other believers. It can be hard. It can be straining. It can be uh, energy uh, sucking from us sometimes. God, but we trust that it is good for us. And I see all the benefits that you have provided for me and my life by the community that you've placed around me. God, thank you for that community. Help other people to see the good news of life with you and life in community with your people. God, we we want to praise your name. We want to come and show our great joy based upon something that we didn't earn or deserve, status in your family. So as we take this meal, be glorified as we are saying that what Jesus has done has made us family. And that mark of family has given us joy that we can't explain and can't contain. May that be our response today as we take this meal and as we sing. Amen. I invite you guys to come, tear off a piece of the bread.